Hey everybody, you're listening to the We Are Rising podcast. In this episode, we are looking back at the UWFI. And with this interview, we are talking to Steve Nelson. He's one of the many noted people from America who have won championships in judo. He's also a former MMA fighter with a 3-3 and record. Uh, he came from the same... MMA fighting sphere as Evan Tanner uh, down in Texas uh, when they were fighting on the regional scene uh, back in Unified Shoot Wrestling, USWF, which was kind of like a mix of pro wrestling, MMA, um, but it was mostly MMA. But in this interview, uh, he talked about... uh, how he got into the UWFI, uh, starting out in MMA, um, and uh, just also his beginning of his pro wrestling career, which was actually, if you can believe it, in Lucha Libre down in Mexico, in what was known as EMLL, E-M-L-L excuse me, which is now CMLL. Um, but it's a very great interview. Uh, Steve uh, does leaves no stone unturned. And uh, we hope that you enjoyed this portion of our UWFI retrospective. Enjoy. And uh, Steve, thank you so much for doing this interview. We really appreciate you taking your time out to talk about basically your entire career. Oh, it's great! It's great to be here. I appreciate you guys giving me a shout. I'm always happy to talk to somebody that's a uh, wrestling enthusiast. Oh, thank uh, you. Let's do this thing. Thank you, thank you. Well, first off, I just want to know. Uh, uh, you're in Texas. Coronavirus, you know, has you know has made the news in Texas. I'm just curious to know, like, how are you doing? You know, yourself, your family, friends, are things okay for the most part? Yeah, I'm uh, doing great. I, you know, I had a teaching wrestling career. I retired from that back in uh, 2013, and I immediately, uh, actually, I was working at a restaurant for the last two years of my coaching career. Whenever I could, I. Uh, the last eight years, I've been working at a, a restaurant as a general manager at Sakura Japanese Steakhouse, and uh, I retired like on March 29th, and that was just a day after they locked down the state or for the coronavirus. So uh, I basically I got out just in time. Oh wow! And it's going to be uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of work involved for the new general manager that I hired, and you know for the, the employees. So, but that's no different than any place else in the country. It's. Uh, I'm safe. I uh, I just I just, actually I work out more now that I don't go to the gym. I call some dumbbells and I work out and, and uh, stay safe and go to Walmart. That's about it. Okay, great, great. You know, and uh, of course, Christian and I we wish you the best to you, your family, your friends. We hope that uh, everybody that you know, including yourself, stays healthy uh, in this. Uh, hey, pandemic. I appreciate that. Same to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. Uh, so my first question is, uh, let's, let's start talk about uh, your, your lineage. Your grandparents and your parents were all pro wrestlers. Can you just talk a little bit, uh, uh, if you can, do, if you know how they got into pro wrestling? Well, I, I'll be honest with you. Well, my grandfather, his name was Robert Pico, and he wrestled as Robert Pico. He wrestled as uh, Bobby Lane, and he wrestled mostly as Pancho Villa. And uh, he was a professional boxer before he got into pro wrestling. Uh, my grandmother, I'm not real sure how she got involved, but uh, they're in it. And then my 
my mother got involved and she wrestled uh, my my grandmother was Ann Laverne who was put into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2019 just last year that my mother got in the business at 18 years old and ironically her very first wrestling match was against her own mother so it <laughs> you know she went of course she went under a different name but it was uh, basically it was uh, Ann Laverne versus her own daughter which of course nobody knew that Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's how my mother got involved. And my father uh, was a three-time national champion in amateur wrestling and freestyle in Canada. And after uh, 1956, uh, he won the Olympic trials in 1956. And then he went on over to the UK, over to England, and started wrestling pro. He went straight from there to pro wrestling. And, uh, of course, I just followed right along with it. So that's... I'm a third-generation wrestler. Uh, my my uncle, actually, Ann Laverne, my mother's brother, Bobby Lane, he wrestles also. He went about the same name as one of the names his dad used. And I actually wrestled him, too. So we've uh, we've got lots of family uh, lineage in wrestling, uh, lots of wrestling history. So when you were growing up, uh, was did, you, did your parents eventually let you know in on the secret world of professional wrestling uh, that it was a work? Or did you learn that when you started training in pro wrestling? Well, actually, I started, I started wrestling when I was nine. And uh, what happened was basically my, uh, well, I won't into all the details. My father had gotten beat by this guy that was about, though, probably 350 pounds. And I was 12 and, you know, I understood what weigh-ins were, you know, because we weighed in even at that age. And I said, uh, don't worry about it, Dad. I said, he uh, he was a lot bigger than you. He weighed more than you. And then my dad went to on uh, to explain it to me, uh, how things work. And uh, so that was my introduction to the back end of wrestling. And uh, I, my, whole, uh, my whole life, I wanted to be a pro wrestler. And I ended up, uh, you know, going to Oklahoma State and wrestling. And and I don't know if you guys are familiar with who Eddie Graham is in Florida. I don't know. Uh, he, he was he was a famous promoter in Florida, right? Yes, sir. He was uh, Florida Championship Wrestling, and and uh, I could have lost my eligibility over this, but I I uh, Eddie Graham asked me to uh, rough up this guy that was wanting to be a pro wrestler. I was only 20 years old, and I was down there visiting my father. And so out in front of the crowd and everything, this guy that wanted to get into pro wrestling, he wore a mask to the ring, and he said, told the guy, said, if you can beat this guy, he said, I'll let you wrestle. Well, I got to rough the guy up, and that was really my very first experience. And then my very first wrestling match after I wrestled the World Cup in 87, my first uh, pro wrestling match was also in Florida for his son, uh, Mike Graham. And then uh, just went from there. I wrestled in Texas and Mexico and, and uh, Japan. And it you know, just went on from there. Oh, so when you started uh, 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 in the amateur and the, uh, the non-professional wrestling uh, gig, uh, were you, what was your goal when you were doing in a high school, middle school, uh, college? Did you want to eventually go to the Olympics or? Yeah, my, my goal was always to make the Olympic team. And I ended up, uh, graduating earlier, a year early and taking a job, but I continued to compete. 
I uh, wrestled for Oklahoma State, and then I, I coached in Amarillo, Texas, and there were some All-Americans that, that wrestled here. Now, actually, one world champion from Iran, his name was Ali Izagos, who wrestled for me in the USWF. I had uh, a two-time All-American NCAA runner-up, uh, Paul Jones, in the, from NCAA Division Two. I had the Evan Tanner living here in town, so I had I had great workout partners. So I, I was doing judo from the time I was 17, and I wrestled at Oklahoma State doing freestyle and Greco also. So I combined my judo with my uh, uh, my wrestling background, and and I started wrestling sambo in 1984 while I was at Oklahoma State University, and did that from '84 to '94. So. Really, the and back then there wasn't a lot of people doing uh, sambo. You know, you might go to the nationals and there might be 150 people total. You know, out of out of 10 weights, so that's not hmm. that many guys. Oh, I see. I but, see. But you know, so with my background, sambo was perfect for me back in the 90s. So and, just, uh, I'm sorry, just trying to um, well, uh, Oklahoma State was Tommy Chesbro still a coach at the time you were yes. there? Yes. Yes, Tommy Chesbro was my first coach, and then he was replaced by Joe C. Okay. Uh, both of these, both these guys have passed away since then. Uh, I know that Chesbro was quite a noteworthy coach, especially because they had the uh, it was the Oklahoma State Iowa rivalry with uh, Dan Gable. Uh, sure. Well, uh, can, Absolutely. Can, do you have Absolutely. any any stories you can tell, just like being a part of that generation of? wrestlers during that time when that whole rivalry was going on? Yeah, well, when I went to Oklahoma State, uh, ironically, I mean, we had uh, these guys like, I, went, I got there in 1982, and uh, that was the guy retired, or not retired from high school, but graduated from high school, and uh, Bruce Baumgartner, who was a four-time Olympian in heavyweight, he was one of our coaches, uh, Kenny Monday was on the team with me. He was uh, a three-time Olympian and uh, an Olympic champion. Uh, Kenny was on the team with me. Bruce was a coach. Uh, another guy, uh, oh, golly, John Smith, who was on the team with me. John was a year younger than me. He was a two-time Olympic champion and four-time world champion, six in a row, and he was a year younger. He came in the year after me, and he and he is the coach there still at Oklahoma State. So after uh, Joe C left, uh, uh, John Smith became the head coach, and he's still coaching there now. So John, I'm 56. John would be uh, about 55 years old now. And he's still coaching. Oh wow! Wow. But, yeah. So we had some tremendous guys. I don't know if you remember Dave Schultz and Mark Schultz from Oklahoma University. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There. Yeah, we used to have Ricky Stewart and uh, uh, Mike Sheets who used to battle with those guys. Sometimes the Schultz's would win, and sometimes those guys would win. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we, yeah, we had tremendous guys back then. It was incredible. Did you ever see the movie Foxcatcher? I did. What? I uh, saw the real documentary, and then I saw the movie on Netflix also. I did. What are your thoughts on the movie? I know that there was a lot, I know a lot of people who were involved with that, like who knew the history, were very much not happy with the uh, somewhat uh, artistic uh, uh, license that the movie took. I want to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, and, and I, uh, there's a guy named Andre Metzger that was around back in, the, in those days that uh, kept up a little bit with it more because he was so close. To, he wrestled for OU. He, he, he talked to another coach here in town that wrestled for OU, and it just got to me that uh, same thing you just said, 
these guys weren't happy with that because a lot of the dates and things were off. You know, they they a lot of it was incorrect. You know, it didn't go uh, by the documentary, which I was, uh, you know, I was surprised because they haven't. It's all documented on everything. But uh, yeah, I, I got the same message that a lot of the people that were actually around in those days said the movie wasn't correct and. You know, and, and when you love Dave Schultz as much as everybody did, not just the Americans, but the whole world loved him and the wrestling world, you know, you want those things to be correct. But it's uh, more than anything, you know, that was quite a, uh, a tragedy. I mean, unbelievable tragedy, no matter who was to be killed. But, uh, you know, that guy was uh, an ambassador of wrestling, David Schultz was. You know, he was just an incredible man. And I think he was like 37 when he died, and he was also the number one ranked guy in the country at the time to make the Olympic team. Yeah, no, year. I believe he was. Um, I'm, I'm trying. I, I think he died in uh, it was early '96. Is that what it was? What's in? I, I, I had I to be. What, he was the, I'm sorry. I know when he died, he was the number one ranked guy in the country at that time. Uh huh. Yeah, I think he was. I'm trying because I because then his brother went uh, had the UFC fight in the early in the late '90s, I believe. So I'm trying to. It was. I think it was like a two or three years after uh, Schultz got killed. So I think I think it's around that time. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, Mark never wrestled again after. I don't believe Mark ever wrestled again after 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that guy that was in charge. Uh, you know, a box catcher. He. Uh, Apparently, he was a real pain in the neck for Mark and just bothered him and bothered him because no one should have beat Mark Schultz. And I mean, nobody should have beat that guy. Yeah, yeah. I... But yeah, he had a lot of emotional stuff going on. And, you know, and then later on, obviously, uh, his brother died. But I don't believe Mark ever wrestled again after the Olympics in 1988. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, yeah, just hope that anybody who hasn't seen the Foxcatch movie, I know that it has has uh, artistic uh, license in it. I still think it's a great movie. And that, But the documentary, the 30 for 30, I believe it was, that ESPN right. made, uh, fantastic as well. So if you are into collegiate wrestling history, I highly recommend uh, watching that. Um, oh, absolutely. Anything I can catch, I watch. Uh, so let's talk about Sambo because... I think that Sambo's, I feel like people, uh, people who are into uh, combat sports think they know what it, what Sambo is, uh, thanks to the rise of like fires like Khabib Nurmagomedov and a bunch of Dagestani and Russian fires, but they don't really know exactly what it is. So can you just tell us in your own words, what is Sambo? Yeah, there's two types of Sambo. You know, I retired from Sambo in, in 94 and, uh, at that time, there was only sports sambo, which was uh, didn't involve any, you know, kicking and punching. And, uh, you know, it, in combat sambo, you are allowed to kick, punch, do the sambo as, as regular. And uh, you're even allowed to kick in the groin, which is hard to believe. And you're allowed to headbutt. I mean, you know, you wear a, you wear a helmet in combat sambo like, uh, you know, amateur boxers do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, there's, there's even headbutting technique in that sport. That uh, uh, Khabib is an incredible athlete. I used to watch his hips, and I used to see how hard it was to get any kicks to come through. And then I realized after watching some YouTube stuff that kicking in the groin was legal. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, no wonder he's able to move his hips so quickly because these guys are allowed to kick in the groin if they can get to it. But, yeah, sports sambo is a is self-defense without weapons. It was developed in the Soviet Union, and it's what all of their military did. 
and uh, it's really a combination of uh, judo, jiu-jitsu, submission wrestling, and freestyle wrestling. That basically says it all there. I got and, it. And uh, you wear wrestling shoes, and you wear a, a jacket, which is called a Gurkha, but it's actually it's similar to a judo jacket. And there's a lot less rules in the sport than, say, there is in sambo. I mean, I'm sorry, judo. Uh, for example, in judo, you're not allowed to grab the leg. Sambo doesn't have anything like that. You can do just about anything uh, in the sambo sport, in, in sports sambo. And then they evolved over to uh, combat sambo. So there's a world championships for sports sambo and combat sambo, which, which involves uh, kickboxing and, uh, you know, judo and wrestling all combined no, okay. I'm guessing you didn't do the uh, headbutting uh, sambo. Is that correct? No, no, I didn't. Like I said, when I, I used to hear another guy on the team that was in the military, uh, I used to hear this guy talk about some combat sambo, but I didn't pay much attention to him because I just thought he was just talking. I, you know, I, a lot of guys just talk all the time, and I thought, you know, that there's no way they're going to allow this combat sambo to come around. This guy was talking about. It wasn't but a few years later that combat sambo pops up and it and it's it's the craze, you oh. know. And and when I was doing sambo, hardly anybody even knew what it was. So I would just tell people, yeah, I was second in the world championships in wrestling because at that time it used to be called fila, and that controlled uh, freestyle, Greco, and sambo. And then then sambo went off to uh, FIAS, Federation International Amateur Sambo, and uh, fila actually later turned into uh, you know was a united you're not you're united wrestling something now i forget what it's called now the freestyle but the, the, well you're talking about the uwfi right no no i'm talking about amateur wrestling they, they it used oh, to be the, the, the three, yeah the, oh that's okay the three recognized styles of wrestling used to be at one time it was only uh, freestyle Greco and Sambo. I mean, nothing else was recognized as an international sport with world championships and all these kinds of things. And then uh, they just went a different direction. Sambo went one direction, freestyle and Greco went another. You know, it, but it's between political reasons and, you know, financial reasons and one thing or another. Gotcha. I, got, but, uh, I see. But yeah, but yeah, the, about the only people that even know what Sambo is now is uh, these UFC fans that. That will get on, you know. Of course, the MMA guys know, but the UFC guys that will get on uh, YouTube and look up Sambo, which is spelled S-A-M-B-O. You know, if, when they get on YouTube, then they know what it is. You know, but it's it's still there's not a, a not a lot of people that know what it is unless you're involved with the MMA stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So actually, there's another. There's only one other sport that I can think of that actually allows headbutting and Christian. You know that uh, that boxing uh, uh, sport. Uh, it's in uh, I think it's in Myanmar. Uh, left way. Left way. Yes. L e t a w e i. Supposedly the sport of the nine limbs. Yeah, including the head, apparently. So. Uh, oh, wow. So yeah, yeah. If, if you watch on that stuff, you'll just see people just uh, you'll just, you'll see them punch each other, kick, and then you'll just see two people and the fighter just hit each other in the head, just like head by each other. And they, and they,
Uh, sorry, uh, Steve, right. what, what, what was your question, Steve? Well, I was asking in that sport, do they wear like a helmet like amateur boxers wear? Oh, no. Butt- no. No, 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 no. Oh, wow. Well, when we get into the pro... I think that's a real possibility. 
Well, uh, mm, that, that's a go, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, well, uh, before we get back into your Samba career, since we're on topic with this, what about pro wrestling taking away from pro wrestling? Or should I say sports entertainment aspect of pro, of, of pro wrestling taking away the whole idea of pro wrestling being a legitimate competition? Because one of the things I often hear off is, is that people don't watch wrestling anymore because WWE has has become basically a soap opera. It's so it's 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 unrealistic. It's ridiculous. It's al- it's almost like a parody of pro wrestling and you know the the fan, you know, it delegitimizes the 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 idea of pro wrestling being a, a sport. Uh what do you th- right. what do you think about that and that whole aspect of entertainment versus the sports aspect of pro wrestling? It's like everything else, you know, it's no different than uh, movies and, and other kinds of entertainment. Everything has to evolve, and pro wrestling has evolved in what it needed to to be able to stay mainstream television and pay-per-view. And, I mean, you know, when their stock goes from $5 and went all the way to $100, you know, it's about making money. And no matter what anybody says, pro wrestling has always been about making money. Mm. And pro pro wrestling, you know, even though it's it seemed to be more sport, you know, prior to now, you know, wrestling pro wrestling has always been entertainment. You know, and some of these old promoters that are complaining about the style of pro wrestling now, they wouldn't be complaining if they were the ones that were taking the money. You know, and, and that's just a fact, you know. But, uh, yeah, you have a lot of old school people that will complain about the way the WWE is now. But, uh, you know, and and that's okay, but it has evolved and everything evolves. I mean, if you look back at pro wrestling even years ago, you know, it still told a story. You know, the WWE just tells this story and they will tell you we are choreographed. You know, they'll tell you we are just entertainment, you know, and they've made more money by telling the truth than they did by trying to uh, fool anybody. Ah, I see. That's a, that's a very interesting perspective to look at because we've always, uh, we've had, you know, Josh Barnett, uh, who's uh, who's very much against the idea of entertainment and pro wrestling. Uh, other pro wrestlers we talked to said they love it, they, that they, uh, that it, that it, it, it gives, it gives more room for creativity. Um, it's always interesting to hear just the different perspectives on pro wrestling from people who have just been in the business, uh, generationally or just, you know, just, just, just in general, uh, I would say. Yeah. I, I mean, I like both. I mean, my heroes are still people like, you know, the Funk brothers, Terry Funk and Dory Funk, you know, who are guys that are from Amarillo, you know, uh, Dusty Rhodes started off here in Canyon, which is just down the road from me, basically Amarillo at West Texas A&M. Uh, the Million Dollar Man, these guys are from around here, but, you know, you got guys like Abdullah the Butcher and all those guys. Those are the heroes that I grew up with, you know, but I'm a little older now, I'm 56, but I, I still watch the WWE because I, I really uh, enjoy watching it for the creativity that the company is producing and understanding that they're not trying to make people think these are real fights. They're trying to entertain you with this atmosphere this movie atmosphere and you're you're able to go and see these movie stars uh you know or these athletes these entertainers in person which 
You know, I mean, how many people can go up and pat Robert De Niro on the back and say, great job? No, that's, you know? that's true. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, the world and the, these wrestlers are, are just as popular as any movie star is, mm-hmm. you know. But, it, but the bottom line is it's about making money. You know, and if some of the old school pro wrestlers would understand the bottom line is about making money, you know, and they were involved in that financial part of it, they wouldn't be saying some of the things that they do. I got you. No. Right. Considering the fact that you, you know, grew around people like the Funk Brothers, Dory Jr. and the legendary Terry Funk, like Dusty Rhodes, like Fancy Biotti Sr., I mean, considering the fact that you know, a lot of modern professional wrestling is based on, you know, these types of reality-type fights, considering the fact that you competed in Japan before, especially for Shudo and the UWFI, you think that any of these modern professional wrestlers would probably do something similar to what you did and take up more realistic fighting like how you did in Shudo and in UWFI? Well, I do think that there is a, you know, Shudo is a, uh, is an MMA company. You know, that, a lot of people say, well, what, what did you like most? It wasn't a matter of what I liked most or didn't like most. I mean, I got more nervous about doing professional wrestling than I did MMA. For professional wrestling, I really need to perform to make sure that the crowd was happy and the MMA, the fights will take care of themselves because you can only fight as hard as you can possibly fight. You know, but as far as, uh, you know, with these these guys now, I mean, you've got guys that are crossover guys like Brock Lesnar, and there's, there's a lot of these pro wrestlers that can cross over, I mean, so, you know, Dan Severin was a pro wrestler before he became the UFC. You know, Sakuraba was a pro. Yeah, Sakuraba was a pro wrestler before he went to. Actually, Sakuraba won a UFC tournament and then you know won all these matches in Pride against like five of the Gracies. He was a pro wrestler before. There are several of these pro wrestlers that can actually fight, but they're just not interested in fighting. You know, they want to be pro wrestlers. Uh-huh. I see. Exactly, and that's why when you think about it, guys like yourself, guys like Takaraba, guys like Ken Shamrock, you know, grew from professional wrestling before getting into MMA because it was, you know, the way of trying to build character for yourself before getting into the pressure-packed moments of being in a cage fight or a ring fight against somebody who wants to come across the ring and take your head off. Right. And the and pro wrestling and MMA, they do uh, they do complement each other. For example, somebody said, how could pro wrestling help you with your fighting? Well, you know, when you go to Japan and you're doing some pro wrestling and 17,000 people are showing up, that is great for getting you to learn how to control your nerves and, and, and compete, you know, stand out and entertain in front of that many people. So when you cross over to an MMA match, you already got, you got, you've learned how to control your nerves and do some of these things, you know, and vice versa. An MMA guy has already dealt with a lot of problems or things that he's going to deal with going over to a pro wrestling match. 
though pro wrestling and MMA they complement each other. I'm I'm very glad that the WWE decided to work with the UFC on some of these athletes and let them go back and forth and do some of the things that they're doing because that should have been done a long time ago. Uh-huh. I see. Especially I see. in the case of Brock Lesnar, Shayna Baszler, Cain Velasquez, and Ronda Rousey. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And, uh, you know, and they, they seem to get along real well, you know, between uh, Dana White and Vince McMahon. I mean, that they... You know, a long time ago, they were. It was like it was seemed like these guys were thinking it was a competition. You know, between MMA and pro wrestling, as if MMA might take away your pro wrestling crowd, and that's not what's going to happen at all. You'll have some people that like both. You'll have some people that like one or the other. They're really not in competition with each other. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, before before we get delve into the deep pro wrestling talk, uh, which we uh, are starting to, but I want to. First, get into Sambo, uh, your Sambo uh, Silver Medal Championship uh, at the Pan American Games. Is that correct? I believe it was. Well, in '91, I won the nationals. I won the Pan American Games, and then at the World Championships, I was the silver medalist. In the finals, I lost to the Soviet Union. I got gotcha. you. Uh, to the Soviets, so I was—I won everything that year except I got beat in the finals of the World Championships. So I was a silver medalist in '91. And uh, on your team, well, I believe was it Dan Severin also on the team? Yeah, Dan Severin was the heavyweight uh, uh, champion at the nationals. And ironically, we didn't even know each other that year. We didn't even talk. Even after we had the picture made of all the champions that year, him and I never even said hello to each other. And uh, we both end up in Japan and the UWFI in 1993 and uh, became friends. And we were both going to the same tournament in 94 that summer. It was a, uh, uh, AAU, the AAU Grand Nationals, which had uh, a freestyle Greco and Sambo. So Dan said, why don't you come to my place and train for a couple weeks, and then we'll go over to uh, the Nationals because Nationals were in Michigan. Mm. The Grand Nationals, where he lives in Michigan, he said, "Come train with me for a couple of weeks, then we'll go over and wrestle in the tournament." So it was a uh, we've had a, a, a basically a long, long relationship from you know 1993 is when we really got to know each other, and then he wrestled for me in, in the uh, USWF, you know, through the 90s, and uh, he still comes uh, through Amarillo and stays in my house, and and uh, he I was running a, a Japanese steakhouse and he'd come up and set up in the banquet room and, and sell pictures and sign autographs and bring his belts and walk through the building, talking to the fans. It's, it's just been a great relationship. Uh, you know, there's some guys that you meet in the business that they're just guys, you know, but, but, but Dan is a, uh, Oh, he will always be more than a friend to me. He's just a, he's just a wonderful guy. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Really glad to hear that. Uh, so we'll talk about the competition uh, of winning the uh, silver medal. Like, what was the, what, how do you prepare for such a high that level tournament such as that? And also, I'm also curious, you know, since, you know, I want to say Sambo is still, was still not as, it's not something that like everybody's doing. It's not like boxing or kickboxing where you can go to like there's like a gym around every corner to prepare and train for. How do you prepare for the high one of the highest levels of competition for a sport that was still under the radar at the time? Well, I, with, I think I said earlier I, I graduated with a year and a 
year of eligibility left still in wrestling. And what I ended up doing was I went over to Oklahoma City. Oklahoma University, I was living in Oklahoma City with a friend, but, which was just a few miles down the road from OU at Norman. And I, the OU had a, Oklahoma State didn't have a judo team. Mm. Well, Oklahoma University, they had a club team. And the coach there was a two-time Olympian. His name was Patrick Burris. He was an Olympian in, I believe, it was 1972 and 76. Well, he was coaching me in Sambo. And then I was wrestling with OU on their team three days a week. So I'd go Monday, Wednesday, Friday and, and wrestle with the Oklahoma University team. And then on Tuesday and Thursday nights, I was doing judo with one of the best coaches in the country who was on two Olympic teams. So I couldn't have had a better situation you know, back in the 80s before I moved to Amarillo. And then in Amarillo, like I was saying, Evan Tanner lived here. Uh, a guy named Paul Jones, who was two-time All-American uh, from University of Nebraska, Omaha. And Ali Elias, who was the world champion from uh, Iran in freestyle wrestling. These were my workout partners. And so we would all put on the Sambo jackets. And I had, I had the greatest workout partners one could have in Texas. So I really didn't miss anything because by the time I got to that stage, you know, I was pretty much coaching myself at that time. Mm-hmm. Once I once I left, uh, you know, Oklahoma City and left all that Norman coaching, you know, and I was helping these guys. But these guys were such great athletes. So these were my Sambo partners. And then when I started the, uh, you know, the USWF in '96, all my great workout partners just started fighting for me. So, I mean, I just had great talent. You know, I, uh, Heath Herring wasn't one of my Sambo partners, but he was one of my guys that I, that I started the USWF. You know, when the Heath went on to be uh, ranked number two in Pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's, he's, an, uh, he's another Amarillo guy. Um, did you uh, get, a, like, a key to the city or something when you, when you got the silver medal, or did you get recognized? Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't get a key to the city, uh. One of uh, another kid from Amarillo named Brandon Slay, he actually uh, won the Olympics in freestyle wrestling, and he got the gold medal. But he, but they did put him on the front of the phone book. Oh, okay. <laughs> so and he's a great guy. And then they uh, he became the head coach of the Olympic Training Center in Colorado. So you know Amarillo has a long history of of you know from pro wrestlers to. Uh, you know, Brandon Slay, another guy named Joe Stafford, who was third in uh, at the uh, NCAAs. He's another high school coach here in town. You know, to Evan Tanner, who was UFC champion. Heath Herring, who was number two in Pride. Uh, Frank Trigg started in Amarillo with the USWF. I mean, we've just, you know, we've got a long list of guys. Paul Jones was like, I think his record was 20-1, and 19-1. His only loss was to Chuck Liddell. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so Amarillo's just got a lot of great people from pro wrestling to the to the sambo to the MMA world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about pro wrestling. Uh, now, okay. you you said you started off uh, with uh, with uh, Graham Eddie Graham, uh, but it, yeah, it, that was just a, a, a weird coincidence. I was. At the arena, my dad was there working for Eddie Graham. My dad wrestled until he was 58 years old. He was there working for Eddie Graham. And uh, they approached me one night when I'd do him a favor and rough this guy up. And I said, okay. So 
I did that, and then I got out, done the World Cup. I went over and did a match for uh, my gram, and then I came back to Texas and started wrestling for a uh, a promoter named Joel Chapman. But my I had an agent that his name was Ricky Romero who would get me my matches. He got me my matches in Texas, and then uh, he called he called Mexico and got me booked over in Mexico. Yeah, I want to talk about that because you started. Because well, usually you either begin in Mexico, or I feel like you kind of graduate to Mexico. But it seems like I I don't know. I can't explain like how, like how you trans. How did you transition to going from uh the ter- the like the regionals in in Texas to Mexico so quickly? Well, Ricky Romero is from Amarillo, and he used to wrestle with my father. He used to wrestle for Dory Funk Senior. Terry Funk's daddy was the the owner around Amarillo for the pro wrestling here. He owned the place, and Ricky Romero and my father, who my father was one of the Mr. Wrestlings. There was, I think, four Mr. Wrestlings, and my father was one of those. And uh, there was one in Mexico, and there was three here. Where there was like Mr. Wrestling one and two, and then a Mr. Wrestling, which was my dad. But so my father wrestled here in Amarillo with Ricky, and then. Uh, I was wrestling at these matches, and Ricky was my agent, getting me these matches in Texas, and, and uh, I told him I would like to go to Mexico and wrestle, and Ricky said, well, you're perfect, because I only weighed about 100, and oh, back then, I, I would say I was about 185, and he said, you're perfect for Mexico wrestling, and he called uh, uh, a guy named Mr. Luteroth, who owned, uh, it was, uh, I think it... It, it was CMLL, but it's the NWA, which was an extension of, uh, you know, the NWA here in America. They used our, they used America's NWA heavyweight champion as their heavyweight champion, but they had weight divisions for all the rest of the champions, you know, which they were using as NWA champs. I think it was back then known as the EMLL, now it's known as CMLL. Yeah, that might that might have been it. That might be correct. It's, that sounds right to that sounds right to me. It's I uh, I was there in '89, so I'm I'm getting my my letters mixed up, or mm-hmm. I, or I've or I've seen them both, one or the other. Uh, so to talk about your the most I guess noteworthy match you had in uh, EMLL CMLL was a hair versus hair match against Pirata Morgan. Can you talk about yeah. that match? Yeah, that was. Uh, it, I think I'm sorry. Morgan, dude, but please continue. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Parata Morgan is what it is, and and that means the pirate. And uh, you know, it's not a funny story, not for him most more than likely. But the way that he he actually he wore a patch over one eye, and that was because he actually had a he was a a uh, wrestling as as a heel one night. They threw, they're throwing things at him after the match, and a peso hit him in the eye and knocked his eye out. And uh, so he became Parata Morgan. Well, anyway, yeah, they started a feud between me and him, and for about my last four or five weeks there, we wrestled each other in different arenas and and uh, went on to uh, the last match in Arena Mexico. Uh, they had it hair versus hair, and I lost, and they shaved my hair in the middle of the ring, and, and the place was sold out. I think it was 12,000 people. So it was uh, it was a pretty neat experience, you know, for somebody that was, uh, I think I was about 25 at the time. I, uh, I It was a great experience for me. I don't, Mexico Lucha Libre 
is of just it's got a wild history behind it. just like the stories behind like how ma like matches backstage stuff how promotions were 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 formed there's just there are so many untold stories behind just the wild the wild uh, and crazy world of lucha libre i right. believe yeah and you know i grew up at the wrestling i would hear about mil masters you know I, and i would hear that he even in the uh, back that he would that he would even shower with his mask on. And I heard these kinds of things my my whole life growing up, and I actually wrestled on a card with him. He was the main event, and when the matches were over, we were sharing the same dressing room, and he actually did. He never took his mask off. He took a shower with his mask on and left the building with his mask on. Wow. Nobody in that dressing room saw who he was. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, and from you know the legend of all the years of hearing about this guy, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, and I saw that it was true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, when, when, in, in EMLL, uh, were you were you asked to come and be a Rudo, uh, the face? No, I was technical. Oh wow, you were technical. Yeah, I was technical. I uh, I actually. Uh, was the uh, baby face the whole time. I was the, the good guy until the very end, and, and basically the uh, the fans turned on me. They, uh, they well, I say that they were about half and half. About half of them did not want the American to win and have uh, Pirata Morgan get his uh, hair shaved off. But, uh, yeah, about half the crowd turned on me that very last night I was there. I was going to assume that you would just be the de facto Rudo just because it would be, you know, American versus uh, home, home, hometown hero, Mexican. Well, they, they had these other three guys that were, a couple of them were uh, bleach blondes and uh, one guy in a mask, and they were Americans, and they were playing the all-out heels over there. So they needed me to come in as a technico and wrestle against these guys some. So they already had their American heels, so I came in as a baby face. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and so, uh, curious to know, how did you eventually uh, train with Carl Gotch? Carl Gotch was on the Olympic team in freestyle and Greco-Roman, and he's just a legend in the sport. Well, him and my father both lived in Tampa, Florida, and they knew each other from, you know, years of wrestling, and it's the same places. My dad wrestled in Germany, you know, and... Uh, so I was doing the Sambo, and I was getting ready in 1990 to go to Russia. So my father asked Carl if he would train me for a while at his house. And, and we, did, we, we did a little submission wrestling. We didn't do uh, you know any jacket wrestling or any of that kind of stuff. He showed me a couple of submission holds, which really ended up helping me in my career because he, was, he taught me some choke holds, which, but in Sambo, you're not allowed to choke. You can in combat Sambo, but sports Sambo, you don't. You know, judo, you choke. Sports Sambo, you don't. In sports Sambo, you do ankle locks. In judo, you're not allowed to do ankle locks. So it's just a rule variation. But he was teaching me uh, leg locks while I was there, while he was doing my uh, conditioning. And I was doing it, and he was, he was running the thing. Let's put it that way. Mm. But uh, he, he, him teaching me leg locks, that lasted my whole Sambo career. I mean, even the, my last world championships, I was catching guys in ankle locks. It, it really was because of what I learned from him. I gotcha. But I got it, was, it, it, was, it was through, it was through my, my father being a friend of his. That's how I ended up training with him. And uh, what, what's transitioned to UWFI, uh, your Japan career? So how did the call from 
uh, UWFI come about? Well, that came about you know, through the Sambo. UWFI was looking through, looking for guys, and somehow they got my number. And uh, they called me from Japan, and they said, "Would you like to do some real pro wrestling?" And uh, I said, "Do I get paid?" And they said, "You get paid." So I had to go to a tryout in Tennessee, which there I don't remember the agent's name. He wasn't a wrestler, but there was a Japanese agent that lived there in Tennessee because he did all the tryouts. He was there. Uh, another wrestler who was a, a tag partner of mine in Japan in UWF. His name was Gene Lydic. He was there. Kakihara was there, and uh, Billy Robinson was there, who was who was the coach for the tryouts, and. Billy Robinson would fly back and forth also. Him and a guy named Lupez, who you might be familiar with, mm-hmm. those two guys used to fly back and forth with UWFI, with the company. But, but Robinson used to run the, uh, the tryouts and coach the guys. But I went to the tryout. It was, the tryout was only about three days long, but they started all of us off with uh, the very first thing we did was we got in a circle and did 300 squats. So some of the guys didn't even show back up the next day because they, but I knew that was coming. I because because I know the Japanese and from being with Carl Gotch, I knew that was coming already anyway. So I had been doing squats like that, so that what that didn't bother me. So by the time it was all done, in all honesty, I was the only guy that got to get picked and go over to Japan and start wrestling for those guys. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. So actually, we have a question uh, from a listener regarding. Uh, UWFI, and this is from Maurizio Savona at msavona11 on Twitter. He asks, how much, quote, competition was there in the matches? Was it actual shoot fighting? Uh, well, let's put it this way. It's not a, the matches are not choreographed matches, and there was a lot of competition, yes, involved in the matches. Mm. And, uh, it, uh, and one of the reasons I say that there's a lot of pro wrestlers that can actually fight is because when we used to go to UWFI, we would go there a week early. And that's what we did there for a whole week before the match. We would go to the gym and they would keep us in the gym for about five hours a day. And we would work out. We would do submission wrestling. We'd do kickboxing. And then we would have our match, say, on Saturday night. So all of us, not just them or, or the Americans, all of us trained together and we truly learned how to fight. And then we would have the UWFI matches. And uh, I, I would say to the listener, yes, the, the matches were very competitive. Uh, Mark Fleming, he said this in an interview and it really stuck with me about, uh, about the, uh, how UWFI was composed. Mark Fleming said, on the feet, it was a work. On the ground, it was a shoot. Would you say that's kind of <laughs> accurate? Well, well, uh, there's a lot of us that might have a different opinion of on the feet when you're getting the uh, head kicked out of you, <laughs> you know, and you're getting slapped around. I would say it's a shoot on your feet, too. Uh, there, there's a lot of us Americans that uh, weren't very good at kickboxing, and uh, so we got the worst end of that deal from the Japanese. So I would say it was a shoot on your feet, too. I, I would say he's... He's uh, right on the end of the, the mad end of it, and it's also a shoot on your feet. It it was a rough, rough style of pro wrestling. How did the training and competition compare to when you were training at OSU? Uh, was it any? Uh, was it tougher? Was it 
uh, equal? Was it not as tough? Just like what was like compare the two well, training regimens? Well, you're, at always, you know, my career, you're, you're comparing about uh, three and a half years of uh, working out. On average, you'd work out about two and a half hours a day, but it was extremely intense for the whole two hours every single day because and you've got to go to class. You've got all these things, and it lasted for years. You know, over the UWFI, you would spend five hours, you know, and a lot of that would be learning techniques too, learning how to kick, learning how to block, learning submissions, those kinds of things. And it, and it, it was not as intense as o Oklahoma State was, not it, not even close. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so uh, when you were, we got to talk about probably the match that you're most known for in UWFI, and that was against a debuting young Sakuraba. Uh, tell yeah, us, sure. Tell us, you know, just like, yeah, about the match. First of all, Sakuraba, his head was shaved, so that probably means I think he was probably still a trainee, young boy, or whatever they they call him yes, in Japan. Yes. Uh, yeah. He he was just beginning. Yes. Yeah, so, and uh, you know, but Sakuraba had probably more wrestling experience than anybody in the room next to me because he was a college wrestler before he was did that also. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the thing about Sakuraba was, you know, that was in 1993. And UFC just began in 1993, so the whole notion of uh, you know MMA fights and real fights that was all brand new. You know, uh, UWFI there was UWF, which you know UWF wrestling, and then it you know a few years later it turned into UWFI, another uh, kind of like a an extension of it. But uh, you know the. Sakuraba, nobody knew who he was, nobody knew who I was, you know, for shoot wrestling, that was Sakuraba's first match, it was actually my very first shoot wrestling match, so, you know, Sakuraba wasn't the, the Gracie Hunter that he is now, no one knew who either one of us was, so it didn't, to wrestle with him, it didn't seem like any big deal at the time, you know, now, for history's sakes, it's a very big deal, but at the time, it was just another young guy going against another young guy. And I think, uh, I'm 56. I think Sakuraba is probably, he might be five or six years younger than me. So it, it, it was just uh, a couple of young guys just having a match. That's all it was. So like, were you ever worried that like, you know, that this, that this young trainee guy, you know, would ever be, you know, that, you know, he might just try to one-up you or something, or was this, or were, did you just think that this is just like a, re what was your thoughts going to this match with Sakuraba? No, I, I didn't have any of those kind of worries. I, I always expected the Japanese to be professional. Uh, you know, my father had wrestled over there a lot, and he had nothing but great things to say about Japan, so I had no, uh, I had no expectations of uh, any kind of uh, double cross or or things going wrong, those kind of things. I, I never worried about that with any match I ever had, really. Gotcha. Well, what about the at, what about the backstage atmosphere compared to like Mexico? What, what and also, I guess a little bit. Oh. Uh, yeah, the backstage atmosphere was different than a with UWFI than say a, a, a traditional pro wrestling matches in Mexico. You know. It, a professional wrestling match, you know, you might get warmed up and stretch out a little bit for it, but in the UWFI, when you're in the back, you're getting warmed up and getting ready like it's, uh, you're about to go to, 
you know, a world competition because you you better be psyched up and ready to go because mm-hmm. it's 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 gonna be an ad lib match. I mean, you're you it's it, you don't know much about what's going on out there before it starts happening. So you it's. With UWFI, everybody was pumped up and ready to rock and roll. They really were. And uh, would you? Would most of the were the most of the Americans just hang out? The Americans, Japanese, the Japanese. Was it kind of like that? Uh, was it kind of like uh, like that? And almost like like in a clique sort of way. Just you know, you just hung out the people who you knew what you who you could speak with. Uh, yeah, well, you got you were all put to different dressing rooms and those kind of things, and there was no really hanging out unless you were at the gym together. You know, uh, if, if I was one of those guys that wanted to take all my money back to America with me, so I didn't I didn't go out after the matches were over. There are a lot of guys like uh, Gary Albright and uh, Gene Lydic was a real good friend of Gary's. Those guys would go out a lot after the matches were over. But uh, I wanted to take all my money home. I mean, even back in the 90s, drinking a beer was like $10 a beer. Oh, so wow. I, did, I didn't go out with the guys. I, I just I just went home. So for me, hanging out was, you know, yeah, I'd be with the Americans all the time because it was just basically I'd be at the hotel, you know, do, go do the matches, come home. I'd go to the gym. We'd all work out together, and I'd go home. So for me, there wasn't hanging out at any time, really. So I also want to talk about the different crowd atmosphere as well, because uh, Mexico crowds can be crazy from the minute that that the that the bell rings. They they're they're, they're you know uh, having the buzzers go off in the crowd or whatever the drums or whatever. They're 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 having it's almost like a giant party. Versus Japan, crowd is very quiet up until like I guess a move happens or or just there's in ring action. You know uh, there's you know slow claps. Uh, so right, you right. talk about, yeah, just talk about the different atmosphere of the crowds and just, you know, trying to gauge the atmosphere and work with how the crowd is going and all that. Yeah, the, 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 actually the crowds, they were very perceptive. They really were, and they, and they appreciated the athletes. I mean, uh, you know, in America, you know, sometimes they, athletes get booed even when the, it's a, uh, you know, a competition of some kind, you know, by the crowd. And it's, uh, you know, say it's a, uh, a UFC event, you know, the American crowds will boo the foreigner, those kinds of things. In Japan, it's well, not well, like that. The ground, basically. Yeah. Yes, yes, that too. And, and if you're from another country, Americans will boo you. You know, Japan's not like that. All Japan wants to see is a good competition, see a, a good fight. So if you go out there and do a good job, even if you lose, the, the crowd will clap for you as you're leaving the ring. Uh, they were real perceptive. If it was a good fight in the UWF, UWFI, they were real perceptive. Uh, they would clap and get involved in the match. And, and I'm seeing a lot more of that now. I know the pro wrestling back then, it was, they were really kind of quiet. And uh, But UWFI, they, they, those fans are pretty perceptive. And I think nowadays that the Japanese are just like every other country. People are just getting a little wilder now, so they're mm-hmm. a lot more into any kind of matches that they have over there. They're making a lot more na- a lot more noise these days. Mm-hmm. Also, I wanted, uh, if anybody wants to see uh, a crowd of that era going crazy, uh, the uh, Nobuhiko Takada-Gary Albright main event match, I'm trying to remember which which 
UWFI show was, but when those two finally faced off for the first time, the crowd was going very crazy for that match. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that was incredible. And uh, I uh, I was actually there the night that uh, Takata, not Takata, but Gary Albright uh, arm locked and beat Van Vader. And you would have thought the building was going to come down. I mean, it was wild. And, uh, I mean, the, the building started shaking. They were so excited when uh, Albright beat Takata. And I think it was, uh, oh, it yeah, was the, yeah, the, the building. It at the Yokohama Arena. Well, it wouldn't have been 92 because I started in 93. So, oh, Okay. You know, so yeah, and all, all or Vader came in after I was there. So, uh, God, I, I'm thinking it was more like '95, maybe. But Albright armlocked Vader and beats him in the building. I, it was there, the place held 17,000 people, and it was sold out. It was always sold out, but this night they went crazy, and it was uh, it was it was really cool. It's 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 really fun to be a part. of of those things it, it's uh things that you'll never forget mm. so uh, you oh sorry christian did you want to say, ask a question mm. well yeah actually but first of all just wanted to mention you were talking about kapushi sakuraba being you know a couple of years younger than you he's actually six years younger than you because he was born in july of 1969 Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that, that's what I was saying. I said he was about five or six younger than, years younger than me. Mm-hmm. So, is, so he's 50. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there you go. By the end of the summer, but still. <laughs> right, right. I got a couple more questions to ask, and then, Andrew, can lead the way out. Okay. And first of all, you know, talk about, obviously, the USWF, the United Shoe Wrestling. And you did shows, I guess, all the way throughout the state of Texas, from Amarillo all the way down to Galveston Bay and everywhere in between. But did you get a sense of promoting those shows from your time working with Eddie Graham and from your time being in Mexico and Japan? Well, yeah, and the name of the company was USWF. It was Unified Shoot Wrestling Federation. But, uh, you know, it was, it was from growing up in the business my whole life. You know, I was, uh, I was lucky enough to, I would have never started the company had I not been in the UWFI. And I thought to myself while I was there, I wanted to have a promotion that was in, that was, uh, you know, a fight company and make some money off the fight industry. And I thought that there was potential to start this and I actually had never even seen a Pancrase match and uh, we were real from, we were real similar to Pancrase and and people I read some things sometimes that Pancrase that we took some of their rules they actually took some of mine and uh, changed some of the stuff they were doing but uh, until it was a little bit later I, I, I saw some Pancrase matches later but uh, I would have never started that company without the UWFI and I just thought that people would really enjoy some competitions that involved uh, open-handed fighting and submissions. And, and it be and Emerald had such a tradition for professional wrestling. If I could promote professional wrestling as a real professional wrestling company and the matches, you know, are real. And I brought in some hometown heroes and these kind of things. 
I really thought that uh, the thing might work, and just luckily it did. You know, we got we had recognition from reporters coming from Japan, and I was lucky enough to have guys like Evan Tanner, who was UFC champion. Uh, all the headhunter Quintello went to the same high school as Evan here in Amarillo at Caprock High School, and you know he got good enough to fight for the UFC title in heavyweight. Uh, like I said, Frank Trigg, uh, these guys, uh, Leonard Garcia, uh, he he started with me with several matches, and uh, you know he went to the UFC. We just had a lot of guys locally that uh, that could do this deal, and I had the the background from my parents of professional wrestling that I was able to figure out how also to tell a story. I would have an eight-man tournament. The winner of the tournament got to fight the champion at that weight division. I only had four weight divisions. You know, so it, it just turned out to be a big success, but it, it wasn't from anything in Florida. It was from what I learned growing up with my parents and being around pro wrestling and being involved in the UWFI. And those two things... My history with my parents and the UWFI, that created the USWF. I see. I mean, come to think of it, one of the stars you also had was the Thug Jitsu Master, E. Bentley. And pretty much he wouldn't be the star that he was fighting in pride at the UFC. What what was that name? I'm sorry, I missed it. I-D-E-S. Edwards, Yee Edwards, the thug jiu-jitsu master. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going blank here, to be honest with you. I mean, the, the jiu-jitsu guy I had was, I, you know, I fought one of the Gracies here in Amarillo at the USWF. I, I fought Half Gracie in Canada, and then we had a rematch. I fought him here in Amarillo at the USWF. But, uh, yeah, I, I did have another Brazilian, and that might be who you're talking I had another Brazilian that... I had forgotten about, and then the guys writing a book had reminded me about several of these guys that ended up in the UFC, but I didn't keep up. When I got out of the business after around 2000, I, uh, I, went, I strictly, God, I hate to even say this, I wasn't paying attention real good to everything that was going on in the MMA world. I was, I was coaching, a, they started girls wrestling in high school in Texas in 1999. So that gave me a girls team, plus I had a boys team, and I was teaching school. And so I went 100% into my school teaching and uh, didn't really pay a whole lot of attention except to when guys like, uh, you know, Evan Tanner or Paul Jones or Paul Wintello would be fighting on the UFC. You know, a lot of the other times I was just, I was just doing my own thing with, with my uh, school business and taking care of that. But, yeah, we had some, we had some great, great guys, you know, Heath Harry. He was from Amarillo High School. You know, I, I could say these guys over and over. I've already done that. I don't want to repeat myself. You know, for the, for your listeners, I hate to repeat myself like that. But uh, yeah, we, uh, Amarillo, Texas, was just had an abundance of talent, and I was lucky to monopolize on that talent and get them all in the USWF. And, and for most of them, it worked out great too because they had great careers later on. Well, I mean, we can understand. We can totally understand because some of our listeners. They need to be beat over the head with this knowledge because they, if they don't, they'll go back with revisionist history mm-hmm. of what they just heard. <laughs> seeing the fact that you just mentioned your school teaching work and the fact that you, up until your days of retirement as a fighter, all the way up until 2013, you were a school teacher, but 
And I always tend to ask fighters and personalities, you know, questions on if it was, if they were to have a plan B, if they weren't doing fighting or whatever. But considering the fact that you were a school teacher after your days as a fighter, do you think that you would have been a school teacher regardless of if you had a fighting career or not, or if you had a pro wrestling career or not? Well, actually, I retired with 27 years of teaching. I was uh, I started teaching high school in 1987. I graduated Oklahoma State in '86, and then I I started teaching that next fall in 1987. So while I was doing the uh, doing the pro wrestling in Texas and Mexico and doing the sambo in Russia and Morocco and England and Canada and all these things and going to Japan. I, and I opened up my promotion, USWF, I was still teaching school. And that, that, so by the time I got done in 2000 with the promoting of the USWF, not only did they give me another team at the high school, a girls team, I was tired. <laughs> you know, I, was, I, was, I was traveling the world wrestling, and that's what a lot of people forget. And I, that's, I guess you misunderstood that. I started teaching school in 1987 and didn't uh, quit teaching until 2013. So all the so years of teaching was your first love. Well, yeah, that's well, wrestling is what got me my first love because I wanted to be a teacher so I could coach, so I could do. You know, I couldn't imagine my life without wrestling. So, but to be a, a wrestling coach, I need to have a uh, teaching certificate. So. During my career, I mean, I taught I taught a lot of things. I taught mostly uh, health and physical education in my earlier years, and then I taught ESL, English as a Second Language. They were they were in uh, a need of ESL teachers, so I studied up and got my certification for that, and then started teaching ESL because I was at a school that had thirty different languages from you know kids from thirty different countries. So I ended up being an ESL teacher, which I really enjoyed that. But, uh, yeah, from 87 to 2013, during the Sambo and the, everything after college, the, the pro wrestling, the Mexico, Japan, everything was during my teaching career. So I was lucky enough to get a bunch of stuff done, to be honest with you. I, uh, I had a lot of wrestling going on. I was doing judo also, you know. So I, I was able to get a lot of things done and keep my teaching career going my my bosses were real uh, flexible with me on allowing me to leave town, and and uh, they basically thought that all this wrestling also contributed to making me a better coach. So they would allow me to go. So it was really nice. I see. Now, Andrew, do you have any more questions to ask, Mister Nelson? Because oh. I think we just covered all the bases there. Well, uh, I do actually have a few. And uh, so after your your UWFI tour. You went into MMA. You had your first show or your first fight at WCC, uh, World Combat Championships. Can you just talk about going into this? At the time, it was the whole idea of like mixed martial arts was new. It was still, it was still, it was, I should say it was new, but it was still, it was being developed into eventually what we, you know, the modern MMA sport that is now. But it was still like this under kind of a little bit of under under the radar sport just talk about like how you got transitioned into full-fledged mma uh for a time being 
Yeah, it wasn't, uh, at that time, it wasn't real hard to get into these fights. You know, they went mostly off of your amateur background. So, you know, I was able to, uh, I was also third in the World Cup. So what I did really was I took my pictures from being on the podium from uh, the World Cup and then the World Championships. I would send these pictures to these promoters and, and basically that was about all it took. I was my own manager and uh, I would I would find out something's going on and I would send it in and I would get a match. You know, I uh, that's how I ended up fighting Half Gracie and the, the it was for the uh, oh I forget what the name of the company was called. I think it was called the Extreme Challenge uh, Championships. Uh, I or that might I can't even remember what it was. But I went to Canada, Gracie, and we fought for the lightweight title. And all it was, and that was on pay-per-view. Back then, if you had a big amateur background, you could get these big matches, you know. So, and there wasn't uh, where guys like me and Tanner and Paul Jones, and where we used to train, all there was was a wrestling mat, and there was one uh, one bag hanging from the ceiling, and we hardly ever even used that thing. (laughs) So there wasn't, so there wasn't a lot of uh, MMA training going on for us either. You know, we were. uh, we were practicing, getting ready for the USWF type stuff, and and I was the first one. Like my first pay per view, which showed here in Texas, was in the UWFI. So I, from being from Amarillo and coaching from here, and world medalist in Sambo and pay per view, you know, with uh, uh, UWFI in Japan, my town already knew me. So me being on the card kind of got the USWF started, but. Uh, Really, I, I all I felt like about doing the cage fighting was that I've had probably a few thousand matches. This just added punching and kicking in that, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, us guys back then, in all honesty, weren't nothing compared to these guys now. These guys now are just incredible. I mean, you're talking about Olympic champions, world sambo champions, world jiu-jitsu champions, you know, freestyle Olympic champions, uh you're talking about these kind of guys that are getting involved in this sport and only one one champion can reign superior, you know. I'm not saying that always the right guy gets the title shot. I'm not saying that at all because there's always a promoter involved. But when you go to that UFC, these guys are at a totally different level than it used to be. And uh, it's really something to watch. You know, people say, well, there's no more than the World Championships or the Olympics. Well, not necessarily. There is one more thing that puts all those world champions into it if they want to be in it, you know. Mm. But there are there's a lot of champions out there that don't want anything to do with the UFC because, you know, let's be honest, getting punched in the face just isn't something that everybody is willing to want to do. <laughs> That's true. That's very yeah. true. Um, yeah, so let's talk about your two matches with Hoff Gracie. Um, the first one, like you said, was in Canada. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't uh, go your way. And um, the fight did uh, was not that long, but the second fight lasted about thirteen minutes, and this was for USWF. Um, right, so, right. Talk about. Yeah, I, I, I would say the match in Canada didn't go my way. I got TKO'd in about forty-five seconds or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, it, it didn't go my way, and then uh, then the uh, we Canada it was against the law to be fist fighting anyway. We did on the Indian reservation. And uh, the police still came to our hotel and was able to pick up about seven of us and they threw us in jail for a couple of days. <laughs> so it, it, so besides getting knocked out, I got thrown in jail for a couple of days for fist fighting in Canada because it was against the law. They said uh, 
it is the Indian reservation. They said, but the Indian reservation is in Canada, so you guys are going to jail. Oh, so God. it was me and about six other people. And John Peretti was one of them. Uh, I believe another one was Conan Silvieri. Uh, I believe that was his name, big heavyweight. Uh, but there, there were several of us that got to go. And uh, so, yeah, it didn't go too good. But, yeah, the, I had the rematch here in Amarillo in my own company. And, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I was doing real well. I, there was, there, it was, that, it, my company, it was a 15-minute round straight through and then a five-minute overtime if nobody won. And, and I, uh, like a lot of the Gracie's matches, though, what you, you think you're winning and you're doing fine and you relax, and the next thing you know, you're caught in an arm lock or a chokehold. And, uh, you know, so... Hats off to Hal if he beat me twice. You know, there's there's not much I can uh, say except uh, he did a, he did a good job and and uh, he got the victory both times. Well, you know, at least in the second fight, you know, I watched both fights. Second fight definitely seemed you were much more prepared for his the whole jujitsu aspect, which was still that was still an undiscovered sport for uh, or martial arts for a lot of people here. You know, as we you know, Royce Gracie won uh, the first USC tournament. Basically, just doing that and doing nothing else but tapping out people, uh, submitting right. them with chokes and arm bars. But for someone, you know, for you did pretty well in the fight itself. You um, and so did you train more jujitsu for that fight, or was it more submission defense? What was the second fight uh, training regimen different? Well, uh, and during the fight with Half, two or three times I got out of the triangles from him and. and one of the reasons was was because uh, just about a year before in Japan, I got beat by a guy named Jutaro Nakao, and uh, this guy had put me in a triangle, and then uh, a few matches later, uh, he wrestled, uh, oh, shoot, I'm trying, I can't remember the guy's name. He was a UFC champion for years at, at, uh, at 170 pounds uh, from Iowa. But uh, anyway... I, I got stuck at the triangle in Japan, and then I watched to Pat Militech. Yes, Pat Militech is who I'm talking about. Mm. So this Juturo put both of us in a triangle, and it made me realize how serious this triangle could be. So I uh, actually, yeah, I did prepare for the match. I, I got caught in the triangle, so I practiced getting out of it over and over and over before the match, which came in handy to me because I got out of it two or three times in the hell. And... Uh, and then uh, I ordered, Half had a set of tapes that he would show technique on. So I ordered those two and watched his technique before I had the match with him. So I, I prepared the best way I thought I could, that I should. And, and uh, like I said, I, towards the end of the 15-minute round, yeah, I was like 13 or 14 minutes. I, I leaned on him and relaxed. And the next thing I know, I'm about to get my arm broke off. So it... Uh, you just never relax with those guys. Just uh, and and Hoyce and Henzo and and uh, Half. There, from watching those guys for years, they're masters at. You think you're beating them, you think you're beating them, and the next thing you know, you're caught in something. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I wouldn't say that he was lucky. I would just say that it was part of his game plan, and it worked for him. And actually, we do have a question about VTJ uh, from a fan of Valley Two Japan. For those that don't know. This is from Gentleman's Combat at Gentleman's Comba on Twitter. He asks, how did you get invited to VTJ in 1997? And did you feel you were representing anybody while competing there? UWFI, for example. Uh, so, yeah, he's got th- those two questions. 
Okay. Uh, he's talking about Ballet Tudo Japan in, in 1997. That's yeah. what I'm supposing BTJ is. Okay. Yeah, it went in 1997 at USWF7. Uh, the promoter, the matchmaker from Shudo, who was promoting that event, he came to one of my events and watched me fight here in Emerald, Texas. He came with uh, another reporter, uh, uh, Manab Manabu Takashima. The, him and I forget the uh, the uh, the matchmaker's name, but he came to a USWF show. These Japanese guys did. That I fought a guy here in Amarillo, and after the show was over, he asked uh, several of us. There was about uh, there was me and, and all of us were on the same show. Me and Frank Trigg, another guy named Michael Buell, uh, and maybe another another guy or so, but. He asked me if I would come fight in uh, Ballet Tudo Japan. He asked Trig to come fight another event. He asked Michael to fight another event. So he came to Amarillo and recruited me and a couple of two or three of my guys. And, and that's how I ended up in that Ballet uh, Ballet Tudo Japan in 97. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And did you feel you were representing anybody, any organization? Like, I know you had uh, you wrestled for UWFI. I don't think it was. I think UWFI had closed down by then. But were you? Did you feel like you're representing shoot fighting, or you know? You, uh, well, I felt I was representing the USWF. I felt like I was representing my own company at that time. Gotcha, you gotcha. Know, uh, U UWFI was a uh, a pro wrestling company that. Uh, with just a bunch of great fighters in it is what it was, mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 actually at that that night at that event, I, Sakuraba was there, and I hadn't seen him after all those years. Mm -hmm. But I think by about '97, they I think in '97 or '96 they started combining with a uh, a pro wrestling company, didn't they? Because uh, I, I I I don't remember which one it was because I wasn't part of that because I that one. What, who was it? It was New Japan Pro Wrestling that... You there you go, yeah. The, those, guys, yeah those guys were starting to uh, blend the wrestling companies together, and I wasn't part of that. I I think I had my last match at UWFI, I think, in 95, and then I wrestled uh, Gracie in 96 and started the USWF in 96. And, uh, and it just kind of went from there. But I wasn't part of that blending the two companies together. I wasn't there for that. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so yeah, you you talked about uh, Evan Tan before. I just want to ask: Do you have any uh, memories of Evan Tan or any stories that uh, haven't been told that you would like to tell about him? I think he's one of the most fascinating fighters and people in MMA just because of how he got started. He didn't have like a. He was watching those Henzo Gracie, uh, uh, Gracie jujitsu videotapes uh, to learn jujitsu. And all, and like yeah, that, that that's that's truly. I mean, he he did do a lot of that to watch, but a lot of people will say that he was he, he was he trained himself, and that's not necessarily true. He he wrestled for Cap Rock High School in Amarillo, Texas, and was a two-time state champion. He was an excellent wrestler, and he got a scholarship to go to a division NCAA Division three school in uh, Iowa. He only, he didn't like being in school that much, so he only wrestled one semester. But uh, Evan, you know, even I taught Evan some things at practice. I mean, it, I don't know. All of us, in a way, were self-trained, if you want to say that's what it was when you're 
all teaching each other things as you go. But uh, Evan has Evan had a, a, a big background in wrestling uh, before all of that started. But Evan was a premier athlete, uh, a guy. You know, you take a guy like Frank Shamrock. I don't even think he wrestled in high school. You know, and, and he became a you know a UFC champion. You know, Evan Evan at least had a background. You know, Frank would say I was trained by my brother in, in the lion's den. I I suppose, but. Uh, you know, Evan, Evan had training, and he wrestled college some, he wrestled in high school, and, and then he started off in the USWF, and we all we all worked out together. So I don't know exactly how that self-trained stuff goes. Some people will say he was self-trained because he watched videos, but like I just told you, I watch videos of Hal, but that doesn't make me self-trained. Mm, I see. I see. And I, because that's the story you hear often about Evan Tanner, is that he was ordering the Gracie tapes and doing that way. That's why. That's like. Well, I guess maybe it's an urban legend or just one of those. Th- maybe that's just true, but it's kind of like is exaggerated to a point. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't. He didn't have like the lion's den where you had a. You know, like for Frank had these older guys and had his brother teaching him these kinds of things. I, I guess that's what Frank's situation was. I don't want to swear to that, but I would guess that's what it was. Did you ever? You know? ha- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, but. But, you know, Evan's situation was he grew up, you know, in Amarillo, Texas. He won the state championships for Caprock for a couple of years. He had a semester of college wrestling, uh, you know, and then when the USWF started, he was just training, you know, with all of us. I mean, so, you know, a lot of it was, you would say a lot of it self-trained because, no, he didn't go off to, uh, you know, say a a school of Randy Couture's, but none of that stuff existed back then. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe all of us would be self-trained. I'm not sure. I know I couldn't say that because I had Oklahoma State wrestling and Patrick Burris, a two-time Olympian, teaching me judo. You know, I would never say I was self-trained. But, uh, you know, but Evan Tanner, no, as far as having big-time coaches, he did not have that. But he did have people working with him and teaching, you know, and we all taught each other things. I learned things from him. He learned things from me. I mean, I I don't know exactly what people mean by self-trained when they're talking about him, except for he did learn a lot of stuff on his own. Gotcha, gotcha. Did you help him train for any of his fights when he was in UFC? Well, I was there for a lot in the beginning, but, I mean, I never cornered him. I mean, I would go to the matches with him, and I would watch him, but uh, after a, oh, after two or three, he moved from Amarillo, and he... He was a real wanderer. He went different places and lived. I mean, he had people that he was training with. I mean, I might know him now. Like, he was at Randy Couture's school, you know. I mean, I know some of the people that he trained with. I know I know them through, you know, the UFC watching on TV, but I don't know them personally. And then he went to some places that I don't know any of them at all. You know, I don't even know who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, Evan, Evan lived a different kind of life. He, he was a real uh, traveler. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. even with his training, he was all over the place. I was the one that got Evan into like pancreas, and and uh, he lived there for about three weeks, and you know did these different things. And I was the one that talked to John Peretti for him, and those these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But uh, once once he left Amarillo for good and wasn't in the USWF anymore. I, I didn't have a lot to do with his career at all. Gotcha, gotcha. And I know it's been, you know, it's been uh, a while since he passed away. Uh, Christian and I do extend our condolences, you know, after these many years of his death. It's, you know, it was one of the hardest. It was actually one of the uh, many deaths in UFC that were like 
one of the ones that I, I was affected by because he was, you know, just the type of fighter that he was. He he was around for so long. He was, I think, he was a, a an unsung pioneer in the sport that doesn't that doesn't get a lot of credit. Uh, yeah, absolutely, because he began, uh, you know, he began. I believe his first fight was uh, USWF four, mm-hmm. and that was uh, probably in nineteen ninety. Uh, 1997, I bet, USWF4. And, 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 you know, everything was just beginning back then. You know, UFC started in 93, but they were having so many problems with the government and even being on television that even in, back then in 94, or I'm sorry, 97 and 96, that was just the beginning of those years, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and so, yeah, he was definitely a pioneer. I would, I would guess that he went to the Hall of Fame, he would be considered a pioneer. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I'm curious to know about yourself, but since you were, you had the 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 training uh, in both pro wrestling and in rest and uh, amateur wrestling, sambo. Were you ever at all recruited by or contacted by companies like WWF, WCW, or UFC to compete in any of their organizations at any points? No, no, I was never recruited to be in any of that stuff. But I, I'll tell you a funny story real quick before you guys. Have- because you're talking about the WWE with Vince McMahon. When my father went, it was the WWF at one point. My father went and wrestled for uh, Vince McMahon's father. And uh, Vince McMahon's father fired my father after, I believe, his very first match there. Because he did some stuff to these guys from Japan while they're out there wrestling that apparently he wasn't supposed to. And, uh, and then later on in, in my career in 1990. Vince McMahon Jr. was my sponsor for my Sambo for that year, and uh, which was uh, it was very interesting that his father fired my father, and then the you know then Vince Jr. becomes my sponsor for my Sambo career. <laughs> so so I know I didn't ever I and I you know you don't you don't really get recruited to those companies. You call them and ask them, hey, are you interested? It's not uh, it's not like a Pro wrestling is not like a college looking for a high school athlete. You know, mm. you have to let those companies know who you are. And the answer to that is, no, I never, uh, I never did apply to WCW or WWF. I, uh, there was, there was not room in my teaching career for to be a full time pro wrestler. That, that was for sure. I, there's no way that could have happened. How about the UFC? Um, uh, was that at all something that you were interested? Yeah, in? Early in my years, I had an opportunity to fight for the UFC, but they had the eight-man tournament, and uh, I don't. It was in in the very beginning. I mean, it was like UFC four or five. I had an opportunity to do that, and they told me they were going to recruit Alexander Carlin, the big Russian that you know he won like three gold medals in the Olympics, and uh, I was real interested in being in the eight-man tournament, and then they said. And we're going to try to get him in there. And at that point, I said, well, just take my name out. <laughs> I said, I, uh, I wasn't interested in getting my back broke. I'm not sure if you're familiar with who he is. Oh, yes. But, uh, we know exactly who 
probably one of the greatest Russian wrestlers to ever grace the Olympic stage. But there you go. See, there you go. Right, right. Yeah, they they were recruiting him, uh, trying to get him to be part of their tournament. And I said, just pull my name. But at that point, there was no weight division. There was no nothing. And, uh, you know, it was after my Sambo stuff and having some success at UWF and that kind of thing. I just said I, I wasn't about to get hurt, so I didn't want to get in there with that guy. I believe uh, Carlin only lost one amateur wrestling fight in his entire career, if I remember correctly. And even then, I think he won the silver medal for, for, for that loss. I think it was 2000 Olympics in Sydney, I believe. I'm not 100% sure. Right, right. Yeah, he, uh, he lost to, uh, oh my gosh, I forget the guy's name now. He, uh, but yeah, he lost to the American that year, and I think that was the only match he lost for you know, that would have been his fourth Olympic gold. Yeah. That would have been his, if, if had he won, but he lost that last match. He's also nicknamed the Specimen, the Experiment. If you ever if you ever have a chance, you got to look up pictures of this uh, Alexander, Alexander Carlin, and you'll see why he's called the Specimen, the, the Experiment. Yeah, I've, uh, I, I've seen a match, <laughs> you know, and I, I actually, a friend of mine called, and he said he watched, it's probably on YouTube, and they said Carlin actually did a shoe wrestling match. Yes. So you guys might want to. You might want to look that up, or you might have already seen it. Uh, yes. A I, friend of mine called and said, "Hey, there's this." They said Carlin's doing that same stuff you were doing. You know. Yeah. He, never, he did that, but he never did go over to the UFC. I guess. I think he also the, uh, one of the ways he famously trained as well was he would take one of his. 200 or 300 pound training partners and like do these gut wrench uh like lifts with them um right yeah you probably know what i'm talking about that you probably did that when you were training at osu sure. um yeah, but i was picking up things a lot smaller yes yeah <laughs> uh well that's crazy that like you that like that wasn't that you two could have crossed paths and probably for the best you know it probably it's good it didn't happen because yeah, yeah. and then, then the second time really uh, you know when they started getting, they got the weight divisions and they had Militech and these guys my company was going so good that I knew if I was on national television and, and was to lose on the UFC on national TV that would hurt my company in the USWF because I was a main event wrestler for my own company mm. so you know, I was smart enough to know business, and, and UFC wasn't paying very much. I was making more money fighting for myself than I was anybody else in the world. Gotcha. So I, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to ruin my own company by look, possibly losing a match in the UFC. So that that it just didn't work out for me to to be involved in that. It just didn't. So we've discussed so much about your career, Steve. I want to know, in your own opinion. Out of all the things you have you've achieved that you've done that you've participated in, you've uh, your competitions. What is the one thing that you hold in mo your most highest regard out of all of your accomplishments? Well, in all honesty, it's going to be the amateur wrestling stuff, and it, for me, of course, it would be uh, being a silver medalist in, in Sambo, you know, in the world championships. And uh, and what I like about amateur wrestling is. When you go to a world competition, you know, you, you win the national championships and the world trials, and then you go to the world championships, and there's no promoter, there's nobody 
picking who you're going to fight. There's no negotiation. You go do your way in. And the way it used to be was you would draw a number right in front of everybody at the weigh-in and you would lay your number down and then they match the numbers up where they belong on the uh, bracket. You know, I don't know how they do now. I don't know if they separate you or seat guys. But at that time, you you went the way in, you pulled a number, and your number goes in a certain spot, and you wrestled whoever you got first and so on and so forth. You know, it, it, and if you beat everybody, you're the champ. You know, with with pro sports, you know, with, with MMA, there's a promoter and a matchmaker, and somebody's picking your fight, and, you know, I may deserve the title fight, but uh, a promoter is going to let somebody else have the title fight because I think it's going to be a, big, a bigger money fight. You know, I, I, I do believe that some of the uh, some of this UFC stuff should be done more like the USWF was where they start an eight-man tournament for a while, and at the end of the year, the winner of this eight-man tournament gets to fight for the UFC belt or start a four-man tournament. That lasts for a few months, and then some. The champion of the tournament fights for the belt. Mm. I don't. Uh, I don't believe the opponent needs to be chosen all the time. I think. I think the position of challenger for a world championship needs to be earned. Yeah. You know? And uh, but that's. But as far as, I'm more proud of my amateur career than any of the any of the pro wrestling or the fighting or any of the or the promoting that kind of thing. I. Uh, you know, amateur is what it is, you know, and if you go to the world championships, you get what you earn and nobody, you know, nobody gave you the opportunity. You earned it yourself. So I, I, I'm real proud of the amateur. I'm proud of all of it. and I love all of it. But if you're asking me for myself, it would be the amateur wrestling. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, a couple of questions I want to ask before we finish this off. I know I said it earlier, but oh, that's okay. No problem. Ask away. Okay, and one question is, how can your fans get in contact with you on social media? If you do have social media, that is. Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of Facebook pages. They're just under Steve Nelson. Uh, I've actually got about 5,000 people on each of them. I, I need to get one of these technology-savvy fans to come over here, and, or technology-savvy kids to come over here and show me how to make a fan page, I guess, where I can have more people on it or turn my, turn my page into a fan page, something like that. You know, not, not that I have fans. It's been a long time since I wrestled, but uh, that way I can, I, I can probably help you out on that, Mr. Nelson. <laughs> okay. There you go. But there's another way. Uh, I have, I do have a fight page. It is on my, it's actually named USWF shootfighting.com. Let me, uh, I'm going to, I believe that's what it is. Let's see here. And that's actually my, my Facebook page. But it is, let's see, you, uh, uh, yeah, that's what it is. I have a shoot, a shoot wrestling page, or my fight page is uswfshootfighting.com. And that's the actual name of my page on Facebook. That one, you can, anybody, anybody can contact me through there. Okay, that's cool. And is it more like an archive or something of old UWF stuff? Yes, it's got, yeah, it's got, yes, an archive page of USWF stuff. I've got USWF stuff and Sambo stuff on there. I've got some of my stuff from Mexico on there, uh, some of my fights with Gracie on there, uh, some cage fights, that kind of thing that I did. It's got a bunch of my stuff, and then 
it shows all of my DVDs. I mean, I don't sell them anymore, but all my DVD covers from my 16 USWF shows are on there. There's a lot of cool stuff on there if you're a, a MMA historian, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I can see. And one more question is, I know, of course, we mentioned before, you being a school teacher, you basically saying that teaching was one of your loves. But if there was one thing that you would teach a modern MMA fan about the sport of, um, I mean, about combat sports in general, least alone mixed martial arts from your perspective, what would it be and why? Well, the first thing I would teach people is make sure that you're learning MMA for the right reason. You know, know if you're doing it because you want to compete. Know if you're doing it because you're wanting to protect yourself. And if you're doing it to just protect yourself, don't use it for the wrong reasons. You know, you're not taking martial arts so that you can go out and be a tough guy and use some of this stuff on the public, you know. Know the reason that you're getting involved in it, and I believe that it's good for anybody. I uh, I was very grateful that I started wrestling at a young age because that way, you know, when I walked down the hallways at school, I was never afraid to walk the hallways with the other kids. You know, I wasn't a big kid, uh, but I wasn't ever afraid of walking the hallways, and, and that's lasted throughout my entire life was I've always felt I didn't have to... Uh, you know, be picked on or be bothered by people or be afraid to walk in a parking lot at, at nighttime at, you know, at a store or those kinds of things. I, uh, and if, if somebody was asking me what, what martial art would you do? Of course, I'm, uh, I'm uh, real partial to wrestling, but I do believe that a great beginning for someone's martial arts career would be wrestling. Whenever I transferred over to uh, judo and sambo, it was a lot easier for me because I had a lot of wrestling background, you know. But if you're gonna, if your goal in life, you have a younger kid that the kid and you, the kid wants to become an MMA superstar, I would have that kid in wrestling and boxing, you know, or maybe two different seasons if they're in different seasons. I would have that kid doing boxing growing up, and I'd have him doing wrestling growing up, you know. And and then all the rest would fall into place jiu-jitsu and the sambo and all the submission holds that stuff will take care of itself but to get a good foundation it would be wrestling and boxing mm. right right and i get what you mean by saying doing it for do it for the right reason because yes, of course sir. in yes, modern day, in the world of modern day combat sports you see all these young so-called influencers only doing it for nowadays notoriety Sure, sure. Yeah, and there's a lot of guys that uh, they're doing it. They're they're th- <laughs> well. There's a lot of guys that are in for a big surprise. They they watch it on television, and it looks very exciting and wonderful. But it's a whole lot different once you step out there and get a little taste of it. You know, it's the the nice thing about now is if you want a taste of, of fighting, you can maybe get yourself into a small show because that's about the only way you're going to get into the big show. You know, whenever I was, I was there in the beginning. So when it was getting started, you know, in 93, I was already in Japan doing UWFI and the UFC was starting at the same time. And these other cage companies that I was in. So all you had to have was some amateur background and you could get in, 
you know, if you want in the UFC, some of these bigger shows, you got to start with a smaller show and get a taste of it first. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, the last question I have is, is there anything that you want to plug? Do you have like a book? I know you said you had some DVDs. Anybody you want to give a shout out to? Uh, the floor is yours, Steve. saying on that on that facebook site of uswfshootfighting.com you can see the covers that i had all of my posters from the uswf 16 they're also all on there uh, a lot of history a lot of sambo stuff a lot of people that's listening to the show still may not know what sambo is <laughs> so they can go they can go to uswfshootfighting.com you know hit the like button and they'll get my my sambo posts also you know i I like to keep up with what's going on in the Sambo world. I really do. I enjoy that a lot. Mm-hmm. And But the, a lot of the USWF stuff is on there also. And you can see a lot of the, where well, you see all of my posters, all of the DVD covers, uh, all of the history. I've got all that typed up and put on there. Uh, the history from each show I typed up and put on there. So I, if you're a historian and, and you enjoy, you got a little bit of time, and, and especially if you're in lockdown and you're, you're stuck at home or you have to work from home, Maybe you might want to look in there and take a look at it. Hey, you know what? Maybe when this is all over, you can open up a museum in Amarillo. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think uh, maybe my, my parents and my grandparents, they were the famous ones. Maybe I can start a museum for them and, and uh, some of the old people that they used to wrestle with. Oh, yes. Yeah, by all means. But, you know, I Steve... It wouldn't it have to be put side by side with the folk family museum? Can you say that one more time? You were breaking up there. Wouldn't it have to be put side by side with Tori and with Dory and Terry Funk Museum? <laughs> oh yeah, well that that would have to be part of the family museum. Uh, actually, Terry Funk comes over to my house and watches the UFC with me. We we sit around and watch that and have some other wrestling people over and have some fun. It, it's a good time. Oh, uh, he's a U, he's also a UFC fan. How is he health wise now? about 73 or 72 you know uh you know anybody would be banged up a lot of these guys don't have a career past 35 now and his career lasted from like 18 years old to 73 Mm -hmm. so uh for for all that getting banged up and hit over the head with the chairs and all the bumps he took he's doing pretty darn good he's he is a great guy super nice guy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're big fans of terry funk here on the we are rising podcast of the funk brothers i should say that's awesome that's awesome. And, uh, but Steve, we got to thank you for taking uh, so much of your time out to talk about your career, UWFI, Sambo, so much. You know, we appreciate Oh, uh, Alfred, you guys gave me great memories. I, uh, I really appreciate you guys giving me a call. That was very thoughtful of y'all. No problem, no problem. And, you know, we wish you uh, the best to you, your family, everybody that you know. Stay safe in Texas. Stay, stay safe anywhere you go. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, by all means, you know, uh, yeah, just, we wish you all the best and, you know, thank you for everything that you've contributed to, uh, martial arts, wrestling, pro wrestling. Thank you for, uh, giving your, so much time and, uh, and heart to sport. Yeah. Hey, and I, if, if I was, my mom listens to this, uh, Marie Laverne, I just want to give my mom a shout out say, Hey mom, I love you. Hey, Andrew and Christian, I really appreciate you guys. No problem, Steve. No problem, Steve. You take care now. I'll let you know when it's uploaded. Okay, thank you.
Thanks a lot. Take care. All right, see you, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. See you both.